Well, I want to take a detour. I, you know, I've, through the years, developed a pretty uh, easy way to figure out what to preach on. Uh, I, I think that uh, my job as a pastor is just to preach the whole counsel of the Word of God. And to me, the easiest way to do that is preach through books of the Bible a verse at a time. Uh, but I, I met a gentleman, doc, Dr. Walter Kaiser, who wrote a book called Toward an Exegetical Theology while I was uh, working on a doctorate at Southwestern Seminary. And he told me, he says, preach a topical sermon once a year and then repent. So I'm going to do that today. I'm going to preach a topical sermon, uh, but it will have plenty of scripture in it, I assure you. Uh, but it's just that uh, sometimes things get on my heart. And uh, uh, when I see Christians that have been married a lot of years contemplating divorce, that bugs me. It really bugs me. Uh, and I can't understand why. I remember the first time that I did any marriage counseling as a pastor. The couple had been married for 29 years. And I had not been married nearly that long. And I'm thinking, if you survive 29 years, why are you, why are you bailing out now? Uh, and I, I guess that maybe there's no time limit on how long you're married before your marriage is safe. It, I think marriage is something you work on your entire life, and you've got to work on it constantly. Uh, so I, I'm calling this sermon, Why I'm Staying Married and Why You Should Too. Uh, because I think for Christians uh, that there is no biblical justification for divorce for Christians. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 7, if you were married to a lost person and the lost person desired to leave, this is let him depart. And that's an aorist imperative verb, meaning it's a command. So you're to let the lost person out of your marriage. Uh, but to the rest of us, he says, if you're married, seek not to be loosed. In other words, don't seek a divorce. And I know, yes, there's, there's some questions over what Jesus said in Matthew 19, and maybe we'll deal with that uh, later. Uh, I think that's a very misunderstood passage because uh, people apply it to adultery, and yet Jesus used the word porneia, but in the same passage he differentiated it from moikia, which is the word for adultery. So it's not meant to apply to the case of adultery. Uh, Christians, if you're married to another Christian, God's will for you to stay married. Now, I recognize that any time you preach to a large audience, and even though this may not be considered a large audience, uh, when, it, when there are 600 people that listen on the Internet, no doubt there will be those who have married, uh, divorced, and then remarried. And uh, my, my message to you is that if you're a Christian, your spouse is a Christian, God's will is for you to stay married to the one you're married to now. Uh, thank God that he is a God of grace and uh, he's a God of second chances. I'm, I'm, I'm grateful for that. But I, I just want to take a look at marriage because I realized as I began thinking about the subject of marriage again that uh, uh, maybe, just maybe, I didn't have a good grip on why I, why, why I was still married after 41 years uh, because I think my focus maybe is different than, than God's focus on this subject. And so I want to do is, is help share today God's focus for why we should be married and help you course correct if your focus is wrong uh, and help you get your focus on, on what it should be. And, and so let's start by looking at marriage in today's culture. And let me just say it's a distorted view. So let me give you some examples. Uh, these are popular quotes you hear a lot. Marriage is just a piece of paper. 
Marriage is an archaic and oppressive institution. Uh, the comedian Chris Rock said, do you want to be single and lonely or married and bored? Uh, that was his joke. Uh, I don't find funny. Uh, a lot of people, I, I worked with a co-worker years ago when I was at Fina Oil and Chemical for several years as a consultant, and I shared an office with a young woman uh, who was living with a guy. She'd been living together for several years, and uh, she, she said this, that you know it, they wanted to live together because it, it would improve their chance of, of making a good marriage choice. And, of course, I remember how odd it was for me when... Uh, she sent me later after I'd left that uh, particular client, she sent me uh, a wedding invitation and she was so excited about getting married. And I thought, why? You've already done everything a married person is going to do, including sleep together. So what's, what's to wait for? You know, I had something to anticipate on my wedding night. What do you anticipate if you've already been living together several years? I, my brain couldn't handle that. Here's a comment on a Yahoo forum. I am getting married next year because I love my fiancé. However, if things change, I won't hesitate to divorce him. And a lot of people get married with this idea, hey, if it doesn't work, I've got an exit strategy. One of the things Judy and I promised each other a little over 41 years ago is that divorce would simply not be a word in our vocabulary. It would never be an option. We'd always work things out. Uh, Another promise we made 41 years ago is, Neither one of us would ever say anything bad or negative about the other one. And I think we've kept that promise. And and I think that's vital. You know, you work out your differences uh, alone. Now, if you need counseling, get counseling. But just don't go around bad-mouthing your partner. Uh, Here's an article from the New York Times, The Happy Marriage is the Me Marriage, from December 2010. It says, in modern relationships, people are looking for a partnership and they want partners who make their lives more interesting, help each of them attain valued goals. And, of course, if you look a little closer at the graphic, you can see that one of the things that they're promoting is the idea of same-sex marriages as well. And, uh, again, which is a distortion of of the, the whole idea of marriage. But here they're promoting the idea of get married for how, what it does for you. Uh, you know, when you re- if you really want a successful marriage, let me go ahead and tell you one secret now. Be thinking about what's best for the other person, not always what you want to out- get out of it. Um, Psychology Today, this is January 2012. I messed up the date there. I didn't type my closed parentheses correctly. It's called The Case Against Marriage. Marriage does more harm than good. Now listen to this. Nothing in life is permanent. Uh, it was, if it was... I guess it was meant to say, if it was marriage, we expect ourselves to defy the laws of nature. Wouldn't it be more meaningful if when entering a relationship we accept the truth that it's going to end someday? Then we can attach with fewer expectations and value and learn from what is real. And uh, once again, if you were to zoom in on that uh, article that's there in the paper, you would find out that they, they were basically... Uh, talking about the idea of open marriages and, and, and one sexual encounter uh, after another. Uh, it goes on. It says, as an alternative to marriage, serial relationships, that's one relationship right after the other, and casual encounters, that's, that's uh, encounters with no commitment, constantly create new and unexpected challenges calling on us to reach more deeply in order to navigate the demands of different experiences. Well, I have news for Stanley Siegel. If you want new challenges, 
Christ ain't married to the same person for 40 years. Uh, and if you want to uh, constantly grow, stay married to the same person for 40 years. Uh, you'll find out there's plenty of challenges just in, just in that uh, task, certainly. The world has a low view of marriage. Uh, uh, John Piper said this. He said, there's never been a generation whose general view of marriage is high enough. The chasm between the biblical vision of marriage and the common human vision is now and always has been gargantuan. Some cultures in history respect the importance and permanence of marriage more than others. Some, like our own, have such low, casual, take-it-or-leave-it attitudes toward marriage as to make the biblical vision seem ludicrous to most people. Now, by the way, I'm going to go ahead and confess up front that uh, I've been reading uh, John Piper's book called This Momentary Marriage. And you're going to see a lot of quotes from it. I don't normally do that, but sometimes people are so worthy of quoting that, that it would be uh, wrong for me not to. And so you're going to see a lot of John Piper quotes because he's, he's got a book that's right on it. Well, a biblical view of marriage, uh, the world's view is a distorted view. The biblical view is quite a different view. In fact, is it's radically different. Now, some of you know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer was. He was a Lutheran pastor in Germany, Nazi Germany. And he was engaged to be married to Maria von Weidemeyer, but he was hanged on April 9, 1945, at the age of 39, just a few weeks before his scheduled wedding. So he never got to be married. As John Piper said, he skipped the shadow on the way to the reality. I like that. Um, but as a young pastor in Germany, he'd been opposed to Nazism. He was finally arrested on April 5, 1943. Uh, it was believed he was involved in a conspiracy to assassinate Adolf Hitler. Well, some are called to one kind of display of the worth of Christ by being martyred. Others, uh, we put Christ on display through our marriage. And, and uh, for him, martyrdom was his calling rather than marriage. And for us, uh, we've been called to just put Christ on display by our marriage. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer actually wrote a lot about marriage while he was in prison. And so just uh, the month after he was in prison and two years before his death, he was in the military section of the prison at Tegel, Berlin, and he wrote a wedding sermon from a prison cell. And his text was Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 12, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be so to the praise of his glory. And then he wrote these words. Well, these are profound words. Marriage is more than your love for each other. In your love, you see only the heaven of your own happiness, but in marriage, you are placed at a post of responsibility toward the world and toward mankind. Your love is your own private possession, but marriage is more than something personal. It's a status and an office. Just as it is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. Now, that's really profound. I, I should leave it up there another moment and let you read it again because what it's really saying is we, we have this idea that the reason we should stay married is because we love each other. I asked Judy this last week. I said, why are you married to me? Every now and then I still wonder. The fact is I still wonder sometimes why her dad said yes. I think he was, he was on a lot of painkillers for back pain at the time and I attribute his his agreement to our courtship to those drugs. Uh, but, uh, I, and Judy says, well, because I love you. Uh, but 
there's an important point in what Dietrich Bonhoeffer says here. When you're married, it's not just about your feelings. It's not about your love for one another. Uh, It's something more than that. When you're married, you take on an office and a post of responsibility to the world to show Christ through your marriage. Whether your spouse is saved or not, it's our job as Christians to put Christ on display. And so he says, just as is the crown and not merely the will to rule that makes the king, so it is marriage and not merely your love for each other that joins you together in the sight of God and man. Uh, he's on to something, and we'll go into to more of that. Uh, Matthew 19. Now, I want you to pay attention to this passage. We've all heard it before, but especially the very last phrase here. And Pharisees came up to him, that is Jesus, in order to test him and ask if it was permitted for a man to divorce his wife for any cause. Now, I should stop here and give you a little historical context there were two rabbinical schools operating during Jesus' day, and they had different views on the subject of divorce. One school said you could never divorce for any reason. The other school said you could divorce if your wife for any reason displeased you, and they cited some specific examples. If she twirled around in the the street so that the hem of her skirt rose above her ankles, or if she cooked your sunny side up eggs, and instead they were well done. Yeah, any displeasure would be reason for divorce. Now, I must point out that the Jewish rabbis had gotten far away from the Levitical law in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it's very clear that when you got married, and this is in Leviticus 12 through 15, when you got married, you made a, you, you, there was a legal meeting, you made a vow. And at that point in time, you exchanged the seals and signs of a covenant. And once you were in that covenant relationship, you were Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so. And by the way, a lot of times in the Old Testament, you'll see names that are hyphenated. And so when you see a name that's hyphenated, that's somebody that has uh, placed themselves on a covenant with someone else. So for example, uh, when Joshua the son uh, uh, or Jonathan, the son of Saul, and David exchanged the covenant, they would have hyphenated their names. Uh, and you would have seen that had you looked at documents from that time and you would have seen that transaction. Uh, in, in the same way, when Judy and I entered into a covenant, uh, we exchanged names. Uh, everybody, because she was a lot more famous than I was at the time, I just became known as Judy's husband. Everywhere I went, they said, oh, this is Judy Thornton's husband. Some people actually called me Robert Thornton for a long time. I had a hard time getting over that. And then, you know, but she legally on paper, her name is Judy Rowland. And, you know, fortunately, we've been married long enough. Most people have the last name right. They just still can't spell it. Uh, But at any rate, uh, we took on each other's names at quantity. Well, in the Old Testament, you took on that name, and then there was a period of about one year, the betrothal period, when the man went back and he would prepare a place. And he, his father would typically give him some land, and he would either build onto the father's house, or he'd build somewhere on the property. He'd build a house for his wife to come live. And then they would come back with a wedding party, 
And usually they would blow trumpets to let people know that they were there. And the, the bride's party had to be ready. They would never quite knew when the groom was going to show up. So for several weeks, when it had been about a year, uh, they would get their wedding garments on every day and they'd listen for the trumpets. They had to make sure that if the, the groom came at night that their lamps were filled with oil and they had to be ready to get up and go into action at any time. And then they would all go back to the new house and they would have a wedding feast and they would celebrate their uh, a wedding feast together. And at that point in time, and only at that point in time, was the marriage physically consummated between the husband and wife is after they went back. But they were Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so for a year uh, before the marriage was physically consummated. Now in the Old Testament law, in the Levitical law, the divorce was only permitted during that year. If you saw uncleanness in your wife, you thought she'd been unfaithful to you well, during this year's separation while you're building the house and you think maybe she's seeing someone else, that's when you could bring an accusation against her. That's when you could accuse her of adultery. And even then, it was a serious thing. You had to go down to the tabernacle or the temple and you would have to take some dust from the floor and you have to put it in water and you have to mix it up with some barley and the woman had to drink it. And the Bible says that if she was innocent, she'd be able to bear children, and if she was guilty, her belly would swell and her thigh would rot. Pretty awful test, actually. But it also makes it clear that once uh, the marriage had been physically consummated, there was no possibility of divorce. And if, a, if, if the husband and wife lay together before they were married, they gave up the rights to divorce during that period. And so there was no divorce after a marriage had been physically consummated in the Old Testament. But by Jesus' time, everybody's forgotten that. Nobody has studied the book of Leviticus enough to remember it anymore. And now it's kind of like, well, if you displease me in any way, I can get a divorce from you. And that's what one rabbinical school talked. The other school was kind of like, no, you can't ever do it, period. Neither one of them were exactly 100% right, but one of them was a lot closer to the truth than the other. So... Look at here. They, they wanted to know if it was permissible. Now what they're trying to do is trap them. They want to get one school or the other of the rabbis mad at them because it would be easier to get rid of Jesus if they could get some people to accuse him of something. And so look what he says. And he answered and said, Have you not read that the one who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Uh, that's a... That's a concept that's no longer in our modern definition of marriage. Uh, it was supposed to be a man and a woman. It was supposed to be Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? Okay, so he says, have you not read that they, from the beginning made them male and female and said, on account of this, a man will leave his father and mother, will be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So then, they're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together. Who joins marriage together? God does it. What God has joined together, man must not separate. Then said to him, Why then did Moses command us to give a document, a certificate of divorce, and to divorce her? Now bear in mind, they have forgotten this only as during the betrothal period. And they're just trying to apply it to a wider thing. And look at what Jesus says about even divorcing someone during a betrothal period, which is after you have exchanged a vow before God that you're going to live together as man and wife for the rest of your life. Look what he said. Moses, with reference to your hardness of heart, 
permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not like this. So he says, even the betrothal, the only reason you could break it is because of the hardness of your heart. Because if you'd learn to forgive others like Christ forgave us, as God forgives us, you would never divorce. You simply wouldn't do it. It's for the hardness of your heart. So anybody that says they're getting divorced on biblical reasons, you say, well, according to the Bible, the biblical reason for divorce is hardness of the heart. That's the real reason. Uh, now, now go on here. He says, now I say to you that whosoever divorces his wife, except on the basis of sexual immorality, and we'll go into that another time because this is Pornea and not Moikia, and he does talk about Moikia in this same chapter. He's talking here about a kind of marriage that's like incest, okay? Uh, it's not just a general term because he calls out adultery later as an exception. He says, and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. And look at the disciples' response. Jesus, who is God, has just explained God's view on marriage, and now how do the disciples react? They're following Jesus all the time. They hear him talk all the time. They ought to be used to God talk, right? Listen to how they respond. The disciples said to him, if this is the case of a man with his wife, it would be better not to marry. In other words... Jesus' view was so radically different from that of the world the disciples, disciples can't even imagine it being a good thing. And Jesus answered them after they said, well, it's better that you don't marry. He says, not everyone can accept this saying but those to whom it's been given. Now, some people have been given the gift of being single. Uh, there are people that are eunuchs. I have a, a good friend that went to Texas A&M and he went into worked for the Association of Baptist Students. Then he went on to be a pastor, and he's been a pastor many years, and he's now well into his 60s, and he's never been married. Uh, just because he says he's never found the right woman. But, you know, he's given a gift. I wasn't given. I wouldn't have lived this long without a wife. I just, it wouldn't have worked for me. Uh, and God knew I needed one sooner, and he provided one. Uh, but look at how radically different. It's so different that disciples saying, well, it'd be better than never to get married then if, if, if that's the case, if you're supposed to stay married forever. But biblical marriage was meant to be radical. He, says, he basically says in the Jewish world in which they live, how, if, if it's the case in the sober Jewish world that they would say, how, it'd be better not to marry, how much more then will the magnificence of marriage in the mind of God, seem unintelligible to our modern Western culture. And where man's idol is self, its main doctrine is autonomy, that's doing your own thing. Its central act of worship is being entertained, and its three main shrines today are the television, the internet, and the cinema. Boy, that's no truer words were ever written. And its most sacred genuflection is the uninhibited act of sexual intercourse. They just don't want any restrictions on it. They want to do what they want. Such a culture, and this is John Piper's word, such a culture will find the glory of marriage in the mind of Jesus virtually incomprehensible. Jesus would probably say to us today when he had finished opening the mystery for us, the same thing he said in his own day, not everyone can receive this saying, but only to those whom it is given. Let the one who is able to receive this message receive it. Our modern culture has no comprehension of this biblical view. 
John Piper goes on to say, The greatness and glory of marriage is beyond your ability to think or feel without divine revelation, without the illuminating and awakening work of the Holy Spirit. Now here's the mind-boggling quote. (laughs) This is the one that I thought, oh boy, I need to rethink marriage. Romance, sex, and childbearing are temporary gifts of God. They are not part of the next life. They're not guaranteed even for this life. They are one possible path along the narrow way to paradise. Marriage passes through breathtaking heights and through swamps with choking vapors. It makes many things sweeter, and with it comes bitter providences. Anybody that's been married long enough knows that you face some challenges you never dreamed you'd have to face on the day you said, I do. In fact, I, I want to read you what his John Piper's wife, Noel. Uh, said uh, in the preface to his book, and I think these words are very telling for anybody especially that's been married for a while. I know some couples who think and feel so much alike that they can work together, minister together, live together, raise children together with hardly any conflict. Well, there might be a couple like that, but it's not us. And I will have to say, Judy and I have less conflict than probably anybody I know, but even then, it's not always perfect. On personality analyses, we two chart out as almost exactly opposite. According to Ruth Bell Graham, that's a good thing. She's famous for saying that if two people agree on everything, one of them's unnecessary. But there are times when I think we'd be more than willing to experiment with that kind of not being necessary. In our real life, I swing somewhere between two extremes. At one end of the pendulum's arc, I'm in wonder. How in the world did I get such an amazing husband? I hear Judy muttering that all the time. What did I ever do that he should have paid me a bit of notice, never mind that he asked me to marry him? We took a marriage assessment during one of my blissful periods. The results placed me high on the idealism scale, recognizing few problems in our marriage. Somewhere on that upswing is where I wish we could stay, where there's nothing hindering our enjoyment of each other, like during one vacation in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And apparently Noel Piper is a bit of a poet, so this is a poem she wrote called Away. Reading and rocking chair, butterflies and black bear, moss and mushrooms, pictures and poems, songs and swing, woodpeckers on wing, worship and walking, time for talking, scrabble and sleep, a quiet to keep with you. That sounds kind of nice to me. Uh, I'd, I'd love to get away and just you know, have that kind of quiet. By contrast, when inertia and resistance are dragging us downward, I'm asking myself, how in the world did we get into such a mess? What happened to make us feel this kind of disagreement and unhappiness? We observed our silver anniversary during such a season. Now, for those of you who don't know, I, I believe the silver anniversary is 25 years. And she wrote a poem, Going for Gold. In other words, how do we make it another 25 years? What a way to prepare for our party. Was it you who hurt me or I you? But our smiles were constrained to seem hearty, a veneer we're all too used to. May the next 25 be as great as the first, they said with their hugs and smiles. While I tried to dream up an alias, I'd adopt after bolting for miles. But I knew I would stay. How could I flee? The one who knew me yet loved me still. Then Beryl, whose years with Arnold were 60, matter-of-factly thawed my heart's chill. 
The years that are coming will be the best. The first 25 years are the hardest. I remember, I don't know if this has happened to any of you, but I remember when we first got married, everybody would tell us, oh, the first year is the hardest. Well, the first year was amazing. And then, then they would tell you the first three is the hardest. And then somebody, after you've made your third anniversary, well, the first seven are the hardest. And then somebody said, well, the first ten are the hardest. And then it was like, well, it's the first 25 that are the hardest. And we kept meeting these goals. And, you know, and, and uh, thankfully, nobody's saying that after 40 years anymore. But I wonder if somebody's not thinking, well, the first 40 are the hardest. Uh, but isn't it interesting that here is a pastor's wife who's willing to admit that the pendulum swings from everything is really great to why in the world are we still doing this? And what is it that keeps you in a marriage when you're at that, that other extreme, when life is tough, when nothing seems to, to work? And, and as he says here, marriage passes through breathtaking heights and through swamps with choking vapors. Any of you that have ever watched the, the uh, Pilgrim's Progress film can remember what that scene looks like with the, the swamps and the choking vapors. Now, remember, Dietrich Bonhoeffer never got married. He went to be with the Lord before he could. But in his marriage sermon, he says this, and this is, I think, particularly apropos for young couples who haven't been married 20 and 30 and 40 years. He says, welcome one another for the glory of God. That's God's word for your marriage. Thank him for it. Thank him for leading you thus far. Ask him to establish your marriage, to confirm it, sanctify it, and preserve it so your marriage will be for the praise of his glory. Amen. I hope that's what somebody says about my marriage someday when I go home to be with the Lord is that my marriage was for the praise of Christ's glory and that it pointed to Christ. See, marriage is God's design. And we read about it in Genesis chapter 2, and we'll get to those verses in just a moment. But I want to point out something. I hadn't realized this the other day. I've realized it, but I never thought about it. The Bible begins with marriage, and it ends with marriage. Have you all ever thought of that? See, the Bible begins with the marriage of Adam and Eve, but it ends with the marriage of Christ and His church. So really, it's a book about marriage with a whole bunch of other stuff sandwiched in between. It's It's amazing. Genesis 2.18, And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I'll make him a helpmeet for him. Verse 22, And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. It's interesting, one of the Chinese characters for a, a wife shows a man and there's a gap in his side and something's reaching in to grab another person from inside the man. And so it's a pictograph, very interesting character. I meant to put it up here, but it's on our church website. If you go looking for the section, go up to the church website, look at resources, go look at Chinese characters, you'll see this character for yourself. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave in his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And that had a whole lot of meaning in that. So let's read the whole passage. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heaven and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. The first thing that God had to do is show Adam that nothing else would do. 
And then he's going to make someone out of Adam, out of his own flesh, so that there's truly another human that shares Adam's limitations and possibilities. So it says, So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and look at this, and brought her unto the man. Have you ever noticed during wedding ceremonies, the father escorts the bride up to where the groom is? This is why, because the heavenly father brought the first bride, Eve, to Adam. It says so right there. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And then God makes an announcement about marriage. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold fast to his wife, and the two, they too shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And it probably be next week before I can, or next time before I can get into that verse. But I, I think this is significant that, uh, that God brings to the, and then God makes the announcement. They'll cleave together. By the way, the, the word cleave in that verse uh, there at the end, and it says he hold his fast to his wife. It, the idea is the Hebrew word dabak, which means like your skin sticks to your bones. You cannot end a marriage without it ripping you apart. Just like if I peeled your skin back from your bones, it would hurt. And marriage hurts when it is torn apart. Now, I want you to think about We just read Genesis 2. We need to see what Jesus thought about Genesis 2. Because I, I, I meet Christians all the time and I get a little unnerved when I find one of these Christians that says, well, that's the Old Testament. It doesn't apply anymore because we live in the New Testament days. I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, thought, I thought Jesus himself said that not one jot or tittle would pass away from the law until all had been fulfilled and some of it hadn't been fulfilled yet. So I don't think you can just say, well, that's the Old Testament. We can throw that away. Now, it's true that there are things that in the New Testament are specifically, we're told we don't have to worry about anyone. We don't have to worry about the dietary laws anymore. Now, the dietary laws, if we were to follow them, we'd probably be healthier. Okay? But uh, God told Peter in a vision, you don't have to keep those laws anymore. Don't call unclean what I've called clean. The fact is we can pray and God will sanctify what we eat. Uh, there's other laws in the Old Testament. We don't have to keep all the ceremonial laws uh, that, that portray the future of the Messiah coming because guess what? The Messiah has already come. We don't have to do that. But, but listen to what he said about Genesis 2. Then said he to them, These are my words that I have spoken to you while I was still with you that everything about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. So Jesus, talking to his disciples, later in, in, in life, Luke 24, toward the end of his earthly ministry, he said, these are the words that were spoken by one thing, by the prophet, by Moses and the prophets. So Jesus acknowledged that the things written by Moses, which would include the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, that those books were written by Moses, but then look what he said when he refers to Genesis 2. He answered, have you not read that he who created them, okay, who created us? Was it Moses? No, it wasn't Moses, it was God. God created us. God created heaven and earth. So 
He's referring to what Moses wrote down, but he's saying God said this. He says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus said Moses wrote it down, but God said it. It's God's word. It's not Moses. It's not Old Testament. This is a God thing uh, that he did. So even though Moses wrote the words of Genesis, Jesus said that Genesis 2.24 was from God. So we can't, we can't say, oh, that's Old Testament. We don't have to do that. That's just what Moses said. No, it's not. It's what God said. And God, by the way, it says in the book of Malachi, I am and I change not. God doesn't change his mind. Uh, he, he's still saying. So God spoke marriage into existence. So here's something you need to understand because people all the time say, well, marriage is just an institution of man. No, it's not. God spoke it into existence. Marriage is from God. It's not a man's institution. It is something God gave us. Mark chapter 2. And they asked him if it was permitted. So here, here they come again trying to test Jesus. If it was permitted for a man to divorce his wife in order to test him. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? So they said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, He wrote this commandment for you because of the hardness of your heart. Here's why divorce came to begin with. Now remember, divorce originally in the Old Testament is only during the betrothal period. But even it doesn't matter. Even then, he says, divorce was for the hardness of your heart. Look at this. But from the beginning of creation, he made them male and female. Because of this, a man will leave his father and mother, will be joined to his wife. The two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Now look very carefully at the next words. Who puts a marriage together? Did Judy and I do that when we stood before the pastor and we exchanged vows? Did we put our marriage together? That's not what the Bible says. Therefore, what God has joined together. Man must not separate. See, it's not about scheduling a ceremony and scheduling a pastor and getting up and repeating after a pastor the words of the vows. It's when you get together, God joins you together. God not only designed it, in other words, marriage is from God, but marriage is through God because He joins us together and He gives us the capacity to love each other and to forgive each other. Reality is you can't stay married for 40 years without Jesus Christ, I'm pretty convinced. I don't know. There are people who stay married for reasons of convenience. I'll I'll allow that. But I don't really think those people know what marriage is because without Jesus and the marriage, do you really experience marriage? No, you can't really experience it because you haven't experienced it with the author of marriage who designed it and who empowers it. It's not only from God in that he designed it, but he, it is through God. We can't stay married effectively without God enabling us to do so. See, this one flesh gift is from God. I don't have time to go into everything that the one flesh is, but just as it was God that took the woman from the flesh of man, it's God who in every marriage ordains and performs a uniting called one flesh. He's the one that makes us one flesh. We didn't create it. God does, and it's not in our power to destroy. He makes us one flesh. Now, in Genesis 2.24, 2, it's implicit, but here in, in, in 
Mark chapter 10, verses 9, it's explicit. Jesus coached Genesis 2.24, and then he ex- explodes with thunder the glory of marriage when he says the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So when a couple speaks their vows, it's not a man or a woman or a pastor or a parent who's the main actor. The main doer is God. God joins a husband and wife into a one flesh union. God does that. And Jesus is right to say, if God does it, don't think man can undo it. That's why in Romans 7, Paul told the Romans that a woman is bound to her husband basically till she dies. Because there is a bond that God creates. Another author that's written on the subject of marriage, Tim Keller, says what God institutes, he also regulates. If God invented marriage, then those who enter into it should make every effort to understand and submit to his purposes for it. We need to know why God did marriage. We need to know what the whole deal is all about. So, as I said, foundation is God's doing. Why? Well, he designed it in creation. He personally gave away the first bride. He spoke the design of marriage into existence, that you're to leave your parents, you're to hold fast to your wife, you're to become one flesh. And this one flesh union, Jesus said, is something God does. And what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. Marriage is God's doing. Marriage is a covenant. This word, hold fast to one wife, and they shall become to one flesh, it, it means something a lot more than Serial relationships. So I get married to this one and get married to this one. And, you know, I've, we've had family members that uh, a woman had married to five different husbands and, and, or six. I think I lost count. I don't remember how many. Uh, I had someone in my own family like that just went from marriage to marriage to marriage. Uh, but it, it, it means something more than that. It means something that was designed to be permanent on earth. Now, let me point out, and, and I will point this out again in a minute, Marriage is not permanent. It's till death do you part because in heaven we will not be married. We will have a wonderful relationship with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, but we'll be focused on our relationship to the Almighty, and that'll be the only thing that matters at that point. Uh, Marriage is meant to be a picture of that, and on earth it's to be permanent during our earthly uh, life. But, But it's meant to be a sacred covenant Rooted in the words, as long as we both shall live. Now, Paul decides to explain this to us too, in case we missed it when Jesus said it. In Ephesians 5, 31, 32, he says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So what's Paul say? Paul says our marriage is really about the relationship of Christ to the church. And here's news flash for you. Jesus Christ is never leaving his wife. That relationship will never terminate. That relationship will never end. And if our marriage is to be a picture of the relationship of Christ and the church, our relationship should never end either. Paul basically saw his ministry as getting as many people into the bride as possible. And look, he even says it in 2 Corinthians 11 too. For I feel a divine jealousy for you since I have betrothed you to one husband, that is Jesus Christ, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. He, he won people the Lord so that they could be in the bride. And once they're in the bride, Jesus Christ never abandons his bride. 
That, that relationship never terminates. The highest meaning of marriage then is to glorify Christ. It's to glorify God. Isn't that, and here's where I think I went wrong. I enjoy the romance. Jenny and I still try to have a date night once a week. We try to uh, still be romantic with each other. Uh, I, I say kind and sweet things to her all day long, every day, try to. Uh, but you know, marriage isn't about romance. It's about glorifying Jesus Christ through our covenant commitment to one another. That's the real focus. That's the, that's the reason you stay together when the pendulum swings from one side to the other. It was meant to be permanent in this life, even though we will not be married in heaven. Here, Jesus says it right here. Uh, Mark 12, 25, For when they rise from the dead, they, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. So the blessings we get in marriage in this life, the kids, the sexual intimacy, the romance, we, we should hold them loosely, almost like we're not holding them at all because we only have them temporarily. But they're not part of our life in eternity with, with God. Enjoy them while you have them. Marriage is from God. He designed it. Marriage is through God. He sustains it. He's the one that gives us the ability to love. And quite frankly, he's the one that gives us the ability to forgive. See, we're supposed to take the forgiveness God extends to us and we're to forgive our spouse for all those little things that annoy us. We're to bend the forgiveness outwards. Uh, Paul said it like this, even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Forgive one another even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. Forgive your spouse for the things they do that are wrong. You're just putting the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ on display for the world when you do that. Someone said to me recently that their spouse had gone to a place they couldn't come back from. And instantly my spirit reacted because I can't go to a place that the grace of God can't reach me. The only sin that's unforgivable in my Bible is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. And that means rejecting Christ for a lifetime. I can't even commit that sin because Jesus is already in my heart. I, I, that, that sin I can't even do. There is no sin that I can commit that puts me beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus Christ. So that means I need to be willing to forgive my partner and she needs to be willing to forgive me no matter what we've done. Because that's how we put Christ on display. And then marriage is for the glory of God. I need to put his forgiveness on display. I need to put his grace on display. See, our marriages on earth are meant to be permanent while we're here on earth to point to the permanence we have in heaven with Jesus Christ. So how is marriage used to glorify God? Paul told the Ephesians, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and join to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. We cleave to each other, we forgive each other, and we keep doing it for a lifetime so that we can glorify what Christ has done for the church and the fact he's never going to leave us. The highest meaning, the most ultimate purpose of marriage is put the covenant relationship of Christ and his church on display. Amen to that. There was a pastor who is now with the Lord, and he, he uh, had a great heart for missions, Brother Lynn Stevens. And I'll never forget him preaching a sermon called 
the main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. And he was talking about the fact that churches need to be involved in missions. And I'm thankful that even though we're small, we've got three, three missions meeting out of the church. We support four missions directly every month uh, with our financial gifts. We give to denominational missions. We're a missionary church. As small as we are, we're a missionary church. But I think in marriage, we would do well to remember Lynn Stevens' comment too. The main thing is to make the main thing the main thing. And here's what John Piper said, and he said it so eloquently, I just have to quote him. Marriage is not about being or staying in love. Now that should blow your mind because it blew mine. Marriage is not about being or staying in love. It's mainly about telling the truth with our lives. It's about portraying something true about Jesus Christ and the way he relates to his people. It's about showing in real life the glory of the gospel. So I ask you if you're married, how does your marriage do that? Do you show that love and forgiveness to your spouse even when it seems like they're not worthy of it? Do you try to put Christ first? Are you committed to staying married as a Christian? Uh, Make the main thing (laughs) the main thing. Staying married, therefore, is not about staying in love. It's about keeping covenant till death do us part or as long as we both shall live as a sacred covenant promise, the same kind Jesus made with his bride when he died for her. We're supposed to stay together on earth because Jesus never abandons us. Why should we ever abandon each other? I got to tell you something for people who do abandon each other and they think they're going to get a better deal later. The grass isn't really greener on the other side. The best place to be is, is glorifying God. It's meant to be permanent on earth. Jesus died for sinners. He forged a covenant in his suffering. He made an imperfect bride his own with the price of his blood, and he covered us with his own righteousness. In the book of Revelation, it it says that when he comes, he covers his bride with the coat of his own righteousness. We don't have any righteousness of our own. We have to be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He said, I am with you to the end of the age. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Well, if we're going to be a picture of Christ and the church and our marriages, we should never leave or forsake each other. We should never do that. Marriage is meant by God to put the gospel on display in the world. That's what we're really here for. That's what we're really at. So here's the real tragedy of divorce. I grew up with divorced parents. My my parents divorced when I was eight years old. Uh, and I can just tell you, it was not a fun ride. Uh, my mother, one day after school, picked me up and without telling me, put me in a car, and we drove from Canyon, Texas to Arlington, Texas, where she'd already managed to rent an apartment, and she'd already interviewed for a job. And so we lived in an apartment uh, for quite a while, and later, she, she bought a house that we lived in. And sooner or later, we had to work out some kind of visitation rights with my dad. And so uh, my mother would take me to Dallas Lovefield Airport. DFW wasn't there back then. And uh, she would put me on a plane, and I would fly out to Amarillo, Texas, and my dad would pick me up there. And we'd spend time together, and then he'd take me back to the airport, and I'd fly back to Dallas Lovefield. And I used to be kind of ex- 
excited or proud that by the age of 11, I'd already had like 34 plane trips. I thought that was a big deal. Um, but it was sad. I remember at one time my dad sued my mother for custody, and that was a very painful experience having to answer some rather embarrassing questions on the witness stand in a court about who my mother spent time with and how much time she spent with that person. And every time you were with one parent, they always managed to badmouth the other one. In fact, it persisted into the years that Judy and I were married, and I finally had to had to tell my mother, I said, this is your house, and you're welcome to say what you want, but if you keep talking bad about my father, I'm going to have to leave. Because I was tired of hearing it. And it's not that my dad didn't deserve it. He usually earned most of the critique that she gave him. But it didn't matter which parent you were with. They managed to say something about the other. And so I was torn a lot of times. When I started to play football at Slayton High School in West Texas, I had the strongest abdominal muscles of anybody on the football team. Now, we had to wear ankle weights to build up our knees and you know, you had to run a lot of things we had to do to build up strength, but I didn't need to do the sit-ups everybody else needed to do because my stomach was in knots all the time from my growing up. I never had a relaxed stomach, never, <laughs> never let the tension out of my body. And, but that's not the greatest tragedy of a divorce. Therefore, what makes divorce and remarriage horrific in God's eyes is not merely that it involves covenant breaking to the spouse, but that it involves misrepresenting Christ and his covenant. Christ will never leave his wife ever. That's the real tragedy. The real tragedy is you're showing a false picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're saying, well, the gospel, you know, can forgive me if I get a divorce, but the gospel says that you need to keep your marriage as a picture of Christ and his relationship to the church and how he never abandons his bride. That's what you need to be doing, not making excuses for your behavior. Proverbs 2.17, talking about a woman who leaves her husband. She who forsakes the partner of her youth and has forgotten the covenant of her God. When you forsake your partner, you've forgotten God's covenant. That's the tragedy. Tim Keller says to break faith with your spouse is to break faith with God at the same time. You know why? Because we made a covenant to God when we got married. And to break the, the relationship with my wife would break the deal with God. Let me sum this up. There's a lot more we could go into. But man cannot understand the greatness of marriage without the Holy Spirit enlightening us. I hope he's done that today. I hope today you realize that you're married not about the, the romance. I hope you still have that. If not, I've got suggestions for you. I can give some of you guys a suggestion for a book to read that's really great and how to do dates with your wife. I, I can talk to you about scheduling a date night with your wife, finding somebody else to sit with the kids. I, I could give you a lot of tips on that. 
you know, marriage is like a bank, and if you if you want to make any withdrawals because eventually you're going to say or do something stupid, well, you need to be making more deposits than you make withdrawals. So you need to be constantly uh, building up your your spouse and saying kind things to your spouse and encouraging your spouse. That way, when you do something later, there's something in the bank to to make a withdrawal on. You don't want to get overdrawn in marriage. Trust me. Marriage is God's idea. It's from God and it's through God. He's the one that gives us the power to love each other. There will not be any marriages in heaven. It's a momentary gift, but it's supposed to be permanent while we're here on earth. Marriage exists to reenact the gospel, to put on display the love and the grace and the mercy and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ toward his bride, the church. And staying married is not just about staying in love. It's about keeping a covenant. That's the real thing that gets you through. Some days you're going to wake up and you're not going to feel very married. <laughs> Some days you'll wonder, why am I still in this? But it's about keeping a covenant with God. As Brother Steve comes and leads us in number 243, when I survey the wondrous cross, I want you to just think about why you're married and what the focal point of it is. And maybe today would be a good day to get on your knees with your spouse or pray with them there in the pew and ask God to help you in your marriage put Christ and his forgiveness on display. Would you please stand this morning?